Yeah, I feel like in, in the funk uh, idiom, there's a lot of. How do you say it? It's not a. It's a. It's a mono. It's a promise that is that is made. Self promise. It's it's it, there's you have a term for it. I can look it up. It's monadic obligation. Monadic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. A, there's a concept of monadic obligation, which is one that, that that's a, a two part instead of a three part obligation, right? That's right. It's just a, an obligation uh, to do something, as opposed to an obligation to do something which is directed toward or owed to a particular person. Right. And so the reaction that I have to funk music is monadic because I just don't have a choice of how to get out. <laughs> and you don't owe it to anybody else. You don't owe it to Brian. Exactly, right, right, right. You owe me to, you you owe it to me to get funky. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. So uh, we're sitting here with Robbie Kabbalah. Uh, Robbie is a philosopher in residence at Infinity Lessons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you just got hired, Excellent. my friend. The pay Thank is you. zero dollars. All right. Where do I sign? <laughs> and uh, I guess we should start off by introducing the how we know him. Uh, we know him because I knew him, and Robbie was one of the first human beings I ever met um, because we used to quote-unquote, hang out with each other when our moms decided to uh, swap off watching us when we were, how old are we, like five or something? Like yeah, maybe even younger. Yeah, We were wait, in preschool. Yeah, like well, how old are you in preschool? Three or four. Three yeah. or four, yeah. yeah. I think um, I, we moved from Chicago when I was five, so it, okay, it, so our, yeah. our incipient friendship ended there. So 25 years ago, because I'm, I'm 30. I am also 30. Huh. Uh, and uh, I'm 31. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of Robbie's claims to fame was that he was like, I think one of like two kids that I knew that was that had started reading at a younger age than me. Oh, because my mom used to like to brag to me about how early I started reading, but it, but I was always like, well, wait, Robbie started reading earlier. And it's like, well, yeah, but, but. <laughs> <laughs> and that so. just informed who you are as an adult. That yeah, just drove like, you. Like, not <laughs> bad. Robbie, <laughs> you're like reading for him, drove his like psychosis to the <laughs> ego to the point where he's like, I have to read everything now. <laughs> yeah. No. But on the other hand, like the story my family always told about you, Lenny, is that you had an encyclopedic knowledge of cars. Like yes. makes, models, oh, years, and that we would sit outside like on a Sunday barbecuing or something, and you would just know all of the cars that went by, and you would just <laughs> name them. And my dad, in particular, still remembers this. And like when I told him yesterday that I was going to come on here and talk with you guys, that was the the first thing he said about you. Was he still know all the cars? W was was he like? Is Lenny still autistic? Or did, he, did, he grow, <laughs> did he grow out of that? Right. <laughs> no, it was just where on the spectrum does he fall now? <laughs> I had uh, yeah, I mean like that. I was. Uh, you know, kids kids have an amazing avidity for certain things. I, actually, interesting point on that. Um, I read an article about uh, YouTube for, like, essentially toddlers and the strategies to engage them. And basically what it boils down to is kids become obsessed with things so easily that once you get them, you kind of have them. And so the goal, as you know, as we all know, the goal of engaging adults is, like, mixing novelty with familiarity, mm -hmm. but with kids, it's way on the side of familiarity because they just love one thing and they mm -hmm. want nothing but that. And so I clearly, at some point, had this love for cars. I've heard about this before, even though right. I actually do have, I have no recollection of, of understanding anything about makes and models, but my mom used to tell me that I had that all the time. She says hi, by the way, too. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, my parents say hi back. <laughs> hi, Beatrice. Hi, Mary. <laughs> I didn't know your mom's name was Beatrice. I learned that today. She is, yeah. And I learned Robbie's mom. And all of her uh, online screen names are all puns on B, like Beatitude. Nice. Uh, well, that's also a religious one, too. That's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's a twofer for her. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so anyway, in the intervening 25 years, Robbie has managed to uh, continue reading. You still know how to read, right? I still do, yes. Awesome, yeah. That's and great. I can tell that because you've written a number of papers in the, uh, the, the Horial Discipline of Philosophy. Yeah. Um, Robbie sits before us today as a recently crowned, I think is the right verb, PhD That's in right. philosophy. That's right, yeah. Some would say tiarad. Yeah, we should have like trumpets and horn, like royal ceremony music playing. We can <laughs> cut in like a uh, fanfare and, and post. Yeah, yeah, pomp and circumstance. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, so you recently. So this is the first time I've seen you in 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 actually twenty five years. That's right. No exaggeration. And uh, it it was so cool that you had happened to have gone and studied philosophy, which although I'm not nearly at in any way as schooled in it as you. It's always been something that I've gravitated to. I took a couple semesters of it throughout like high school and college. And oh, uh, they made us do it in college, by the way. Well, <laughs> they made us take one. I, d- I did electively after that. Oh, thank, okay. Thank okay. you, Brian. Yeah, no problem. Um, I just felt like blowing up your spot because I also, <laughs> no, I took, like, I, I also took those classes. <laughs> well, we went to a Jesuit school. There, there was one that was like some confused, like, like TA teaching about Aristotle and, you know, Nicomachean ethics. And, like that was, that was actually, it was interesting, but she had no time for my radical, my <laughs> radical views. Your radical interpretations of Aristotle. Well, no, I, sh- I s- we were at a Jesuit school, Fordham, right. and so the um, you had to solve some like s- syllogistic problem, and I chose like the problem of evil. Is it like how is the er- if the God is real and is omnipotent? And my answer was that the definition of uh, like what omnipotence is is merely that he allows something to be and that anything that's good or bad is like a value judgment that humans create and she totally did not accept it like she's like the implications of what you're saying i don't think you fully process the idea being that good and good and evil were human constructs not uh, you know divine right um they weren't that creative of philosophy at the point (laughs) yeah Yeah. well the omnipotence isn't really the problem it's the omnibenevolence the all goodness right so uh all-knowing all powerful and all good are like the three traditional properties of God. And, and it's that, that all good uh, combined with the other two that generates this problem of, well, how could a good God allow bad to happen? Mm. And it's pretty easy actually to solve the problem of, of moral evil, relatively speaking. Like why do people do bad things? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, God made us with free will, mm-hmm. and uh, free will means the power to choose, even the power to choose evil. Uh, the real problem is like natural evil, like mm-hmm. floods and hurricanes and things that you could very easily imagine a world that's differently constructed so that we would not have these these disasters, and even setting aside the effects of climate change. I think, to me, that's the real problem of evil, the, the really yeah. insuperable one. But then even that, like if you were you know fighting a righteous battle or something against a vic- uh, against an evil enemy who was then the victim of like a tsunami that would be good for you and so it, it doesn't change the fact that like objectively there is no there cannot be such thing as like objective I mean, I, I, the, see, this is the problem. When you don't study philosophy, you make <laughs> you make bold claims that I'm sure someone Look, else has I would, good arguments I would against. win a battle against a tsunami. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I'm cutting out the middleman in that one. I'm going straight for the tsunami. Uh, <laughs> also, side note, Brian and I were just a few days ago having a horrible conversation about how YouTube has a serious lack of authentic tsunami footage. Live Ooh. leak, baby. Go on live leak. Check out all those Indonesian uh, tsunami videos. It's... Uh, <laughs> It's not great, <laughs> but <laughs> I spend hours on it anyway. <laughs> so what uh, what took you to philosophy? I mean, like what what about it led you, especially to take it this far that you're now a doctor in it? 
Yeah, totally. So I like to say that uh, I would have chosen whatever discipline allowed my grandfather to have as many books in his house as he did. And it just so happened that he was and is a philosophy professor himself. And so from a very young age, I wanted to do that. Legacy. Legacy. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So uh, he, he just emailed me about 10 minutes ago, actually finishing up another book. Uh, he's, uh, 84 this year and continues to teach at the University of Dallas and, uh, and he's been a lifelong hero and a big influence on me. So I think that's the, that's the main reason. I guess that's, that is, I think that this is the only track where the guy who gets the doctorate in philosophy and somebody in his family is not like, please just go study finance or right, something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. do something practical. Like <laughs> Totally. Well, yeah. he raised five kids and my parents were like, well, I guess he raised five kids. Right. And it he was a philosophy professor. It worked yeah. out. Yeah. 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 And did you, did you see ever see him applying it? Like, then, like, for example, your dissertation was about um, ethical deliberations in everyday or was it, is it moral or ethical deliberations in everyday life? Well, we could talk about that. We can say ethical for now. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, and so did, was that something that you saw him wrestling with often, or was he ever applying the no, concepts? No, we went in very different directions uh, as far as the kind of philosophy that we do. And he, um, also teaching at a Catholic school, very much comes from the, the kind of continental tradition and philosophy. And he has written a lot on Plato and Heidegger and Hegel, all from a, a phenomenological point of view, I would say, broadly speaking. Uh, whereas after my undergrad at Boston College, another Jesuit school, oh, yeah. uh, I went in a very different path and and, uh, and pursued philosophy in the analytic style, so-called. But uh, I, I think that split is... Uh, is a little bit ripe for for deconstruction, and I think many people would agree that it's overblown, but uh, it's nonetheless useful. Uh, did you f- at all find that, like at Boston College, that there was like a lack of creativity in the way that they taught philosophy? Because I got that from a, like not one, but I think three professors that I had at Fordham, I, I saw major blind spots. Huh? No, I don't think so. And even looking back now, I just think that they were playing a different game in a way, mm. and their game was much more the interpretation of texts that are considered classics. And uh, and thinking about those and engaging with, um, in some cases, the overlap of those texts with religious questions. Uh, and But at the same time, there were plenty of people there who did do philosophy in the so-called analytic style. And, and, and you know, that this term comes out of the uh, early 20th century, uh, German and English-speaking analytic philosophy, where the, the ideal was one that you could just... Uh, you could just use your terms in a clear enough way such that anyone who understood them could follow what you were doing. You didn't have to rely on uh, interpretation or uh, a hermeneutical tradition, right? And any, and I think the, the coincidence of continental philosophy and, and religious traditions comes out of the reliance on interpretation of the Bible or mm. of the Quran mm-hmm. or other religious texts where mm. you have something that's considered authoritative and you got to keep reading and rereading it and trying to understand it and probing more deeply. Whereas in the analytic tradition, although there are certain classics mm-hmm. that anyone would, would read or want you to read, there, there's not that same um, reverence, I would say, for, for the text. Yeah. It's funny, I didn't get that experience at Fordham. The Fordham philosophy classes I took were more in the vein that Robbie's describing, where there there was no, the, I, I cannot not remember the professor's <laughs> name right now, but it was a very analytic or very deconstructive. I mean, he was our my philosophical ethics professor, and we d- we, yeah. we read Kant, uh, Mill. I'm trying to know. Mill was the one that stood out the most to me for whatever reason, because I was like, th- that was the one that jived most with my totally. personal philosophy, I guess, at that time in my life. So um, uh, it's just interesting that even in the same sc- school, we had different experiences. There. I had yeah. a, uh, I actually had a, w- was thinking about 
utilitarianism recently because um, when you know the whole incel thing that happened recently, that yeah, guy drove a van totally through, and people were um, wondering like what is to be done about this and yeah. and trying to diagnose what the issue was, and it seemed like I think the best thing that I came up with for it was like there we are now living in a connected world in a world in which utilitarianism is a much more practically applicable like mode of of judging things like what before you probably always in every society had men who could not find romance or sex or whatever and they were frustrated but they had relatively minor grievances compared to the everyone else in the society that mm. had already figured out how to deal with it but when you're in an environment in which they can connect with each other uh, but you know they they're they're an outlier in their community but it's a very intense frustration they feel when they can connect with other people around the world that frustration is allowed to organically build up into what you know it would be if you put, took every town's version of that guy, mm. put them together, and created this in an essentially utilitarian way, this massive frustration that ev essentially manif eventually manifests in like that much rage. Um, and so the idea is like maybe we need to start viewing consequences in a more utilitarian sense because everything is allowed to organically orient itself now with its like partners or whatever. Well, I'm not sure I would describe this in terms of utilitarianism. I think there's an, there's an aggregation here mm -hmm. uh, where lots of, of people with fringe beliefs uh, are, because of the internet, able to enter into mm -hmm. epistemic echo chambers where they just bounce the same fringe ideas off one another until they become more and more convinced of them. And the incel movement is one example. There's all kinds of, of sort of fringe religious or terrorist organizations. Um, some people would argue that that anything on the internet is going to become this way, and that's a yeah. danger of the internet, is, yeah. is, is the echo chamber. Well, think about it like, um, yeah, fair point. So like, think about it in terms of um, like... Uh, Trade policy, right? Okay. So you have people who are um, actually we talked about this on our last episode. If there's uh, you know X number of manufacturing jobs are lost, but the price for consumers goes down, so that's a pretty utilitarian situation. You have a few people that are extremely adversely impacted, versus um, you know the vast majority of consumers for whom prices go down, and like it's it's a net you know benefit to a larger people, even though each one of them wouldn't notice it as much. All of a sudden, when those voices are amplified. Of the people that are that are really um, dispossessed by this, all of a sudden that becomes like this more populist wave, you know. Like well, it's like why how in the political narrative of the most recent big election was like everyone was, was concerned about the white working class people who were right. probably victims of you right. know and victims people, of NAFTA, but yeah. those people are a smaller section of the representation of the population than than that would be otherwise represented in our internet media age that we live in. So they, they kind of get further representation in that space. But, uh, like, what, I mean, s having uh, gone through the exercise of writing that, what was your actual dissertation about? I didn't read it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no one did. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's only me. Must yeah, have been really easy to defend then. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I remember the introduction, and uh, we, got, we got hung up on, uh, on the second sentence when a... Uh, when the defense started, so uh, yeah, no, no, I'm joking. Every, uh. Everyone read. Everyone read. Uh, I think at least a, a good portion of it. Yeah. Um, my dissertation was about the the relationship between philosophical, ethical theorizing and our ordinary lives. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, you've taken a couple philosophical, ethical courses. You know that there's different traditions in ethics. There's the utilitarian tradition, which emphasizes happiness, well-being. Uh, there's the Kantian or the deontological tradition, which emphasizes autonomy and rational nature. There's the virtue ethical tradition, which emphasizes virtue or, or states of flourishing. Uh, and you might wonder, well, look, I'm learning about all this stuff. 
what possible impact is that going to have on my everyday life and in particular on how I make everyday ethical decisions? And there's a lot of reasons to think that uh, ethical theorizing is, is not going to have much of an impact. I mean, one, one reason is that these, these high-minded ideas are, are so abstract as to be totally useless. I mean, if you're like trying to decide you know, what to do with your life or if you're trying to decide you know, uh, whether or not you should you should keep a promise to someone that you know, you know you're not likely to think in terms of, of virtue or autonomy or utility at that very abstract level. Um, you know, another reason is that, right? I mean, it's hey man, I follow categorical imperatives. I was, I was just gonna <laughs> oh, like thinking because I was like, hey, can you explain how the categorical imperative can a can you explain what it is? Because I forgot. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like open I, that I, door if Anne Frank's in my house. I don't care. That was the example that yeah. like, they taught us. Right. Well, I mean, there's different formulations in Kant of the categorical imperative, but the basic idea is that you, you should act in such a way as you could will the maxim of your action, so the motive governing your action, to be a universal law, so that you could will a world in which everyone who's faced with this decision does the exact same thing and that world doesn't fall apart in some way. Um, but so this brings the sort of the second reason why you might not think these ethical theories are helpful in everyday life, which is that who has time to think in these terms before you're going to act? And right. the vast majority of our practical lives are governed by habit yeah. and by doing what we did in the past. And so there's like very little room for, for ethical theories. Yeah, like to how often am I going to be sitting by a switch on a train track and I can either switch <laughs> it and it's going to hit 10 people, but they're all Nazis or one person. Totally, <laughs> and it's yeah. like, well, uh, this is a real, this is like, I mean, I fall into that trap every day almost on my way to work. <laughs> 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 so, you know, yeah. uh, like, I guess it is, I guess I should be getting a PhD. All <laughs> work as a Charlottesville train, <laughs> public transit operator. Right. Yeah. Runaway trolleys here yeah. in Park Slope. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, well I mean, it was the, the trolley Dodgers. That's why the, the Brooklyn Dodgers were named that. Yeah. that um. <laughs> but I mean, the, the third reason that you you might not think that ethical theories are so useful is that this is not the right kind of motive to have. I mean, if you're like, you know, considering whether or not you're proposing marriage to mm. your partner and you are, as you're dropping to one knee, you're thinking like, oh, this is going to do so much good for the world. <laughs> this is the decision that's going to have the greatest utility. Then that's like the wrong motive. Like there's something weird and, and, and messed up about that. And and your partner or future fiance would probably be pretty weirded out if they found out that that's why you made this decision without any thought of, of them as a particular person, right? Is there any kind of movement to, like, in this way, generally discredit the value of ethics? <laughs> yes. Uh, in fact... I can uh, hear the, the pearl clutching the, now. Yeah, I mean, in the 80s, there was a really interesting uh, debate known as the sort of theory-anti-theory -theory debate, where a lot of people um, were used thoughts like this and, and said, well, we don't need philosophical ethics then. Um, hmm. we, we should just sort of follow the norms of our local practices and, and just let that be that. Uh, and I have a lot of sympathies with that view, but I do think there's some role for philosophical theorizing. I don't think it's a total waste of time, uh, but I think that uh, what we have to do is to see philosophical theories as helping us to reform our practices. So rather than having a final fixed principle like the categorical imperative or Mill's greatest happiness principle mm -hmm. and saying we've got to make progress toward that ideal, we have to instead recognize that we've inherited lots and lots of messy practices and and ethical concepts that are confusing and not always coherent, and we have to just try to make the best we can of those. <laughs> and we can use theory to guide us, but it's going to be at a very high level, and it's not going to be of that much help in our everyday decision making. So, what is it like to like write a philosophy paper? Because I was reading some of the things you had sent me, and um, the I, the the one through line that I noticed was that you seem very invested in. 
the role that aesthetic enjoyment plays and like how uh, I think justified we are in kind of giving ourselves over to aesthetic yeah, pleasures. Totally. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that you you put a lot of effort into um, detrivializing that and, and making it like a noble pursuit. Yeah. Um, but aside from, you know, the, that being a natural interest of yours, what is it actually like? Because it's obviously very rigorously, lucidly thought through and written. But like, is it, does it start when you're high? <laughs> does it like, <laughs> is it like for me, it would just start when I'm high and I would just go pitch it to someone. Do you have to argue with someone in an office first to get like, at what point do you have to stop trying to plug holes in it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, well, a lot of it's a very lonely thing. Uh, there is definitely the social basis where you're sitting and you're going to talk to a colleague in the office and you're batting about some ideas and that's really fun. And, and then at some point you have to sit down by yourself in your head and just kind of work through, uh, how am I going to convince someone of this idea that I have, or, or what do I need to read to try to defend this idea that I have? And uh, I think you're totally right as to the the through line there being uh, a defense of the ethic of the aesthetic and the importance of the aesthetic. I mean, if you think of philosophies divided into kind of theoretical philosophy about the way things are and and practical philosophy about the way things ought to be, practical philosophy has so often just been conflated with with morality, with mm. the idea that the only kind of norms there are or the most important norms there are are moral norms. Mm. And I think that's just not the case. I think there are lots of other domains uh, where we have reasons to do certain things that aren't just moral reasons. And, and one of those domains is aesthetics. And I think that that's a huge part of what it is to live a good life, is to have aesthetic pursuits, not just you know, fine art or, or that kind of thing, but sports and um, games and uh, spectatorship. I think these things are really important that there are norms here because these are cultural pursuits. And so there are rules and guidelines for the way people participate correctly or incorrectly in these things. And I think that stuff's super understudied in philosophy. Yeah. And like, you know, there's a certain humanistic element of it too, because yeah. like, uh, you know, in the grounding aesthetic obligations just recently published. Hot congratulations. The <laughs> um, get yeah. Your, get your, get your grounding and aesthetic <laughs> <Yeah>. obligations here. <laughs> um, I'm going to be the philosophy newsboy. That's gonna <laughs> my, my next character in my sketch show is <laughs> <laughs> philosophy newsboy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what the, kind of the contention you bring in is like if you make a promise to essentially it's really to yourself but you're making it kind of like on behalf of this inanimate uh artwork that doesn't care what you do mm -hmm. like what is the nature precisely of that obligation that you're volunteering yourself mm -hmm. for um yeah so i mean i think uh part of what i'm arguing against in the paper is the idea that all our aesthetic obligations are are moral and that everything that we ought to do in the aesthetic domain, we ought to do it because it's going to affect some other person. So we do have lots of, of obligations in the aesthetic domain that we have because we owe them to other people. We ought to um, protect uh, artists' creative rights and copyright, and we ought to preserve artworks in part because we think that future generations will uh, enjoy those and be able to derive uh, pleasure and profit from them. Um, but there are some things that we must or ought to do uh, that don't have anything to do with other people and that essentially only have to do with ourselves and our sense of who we are. And I think this is another source of oughts, of obligation, uh, and not just in aesthetics, but in, in other areas as well. There's some actions that we have to do because failing to do them would in part destroy the selves that we are uh, and 
that's a precondition for any other kind of action is is being an intact self, someone who can can live a, an authentic and, and meaningful and self-actualized life. Um, and, you know, if I really, really have to go get my way to the Thundercat concert because I'm like a <laughs> funk fan and that's totally essential to my conception of myself and how I get around in the world and what other people know and think about me, then that can be a source of an obligation that I really do have to go and I would be letting myself down if I didn't. Not just like, ah, that would be fun, that'd be a, that'd be a cool thing to do and maybe I should do that, but like, no, I, I really have to do that. And it's not because I owe it morally to anyone. Uh, it's because it's it's grounded in the importance of of who I am and my self conception, and and uh, especially also that it's not like some it's not akin necessarily to saying like I ought to exercise like something right. that has a very tangible self care aspect. It's like I am not going to be the kind of person I want to be if I let down this obligation to myself. Exactly. Although I did uh, take issue with the part <laughs> where you said if I were to break this, I would be violating a part of my identity because. My identity is mostly confirmed when I break obligations <laughs> <laughs> that I make to myself. Well, so. There's like a higher order identity here, which consists exactly, in breaking consistently breaking other I think obligations. Actually, uh, we uh, could we could make that work. Just gotta <laughs> distinguish some levels here. Um, yeah, I, well, in the, the part of, I think you're talking about like what compels people. You kind of like you're trying to pin down something. What compels or these inner compulsions people have yeah. towards something that is like we said, not necessary, but necessary at the same time. It's like, oh, well, you as on the hierarchy of needs, right? We don't need to. Um, you don't need to do... Uh, like my favorite story from... Uh, or the anecdote that you published in your paper was the one about the guy who worked at the Met, I think he was yeah. in And he was he lived on 72nd in New York and had never seen opera before, but right. like somehow ended up in the opera and was like trans transformed by it. Totally. And I was like this... I was like, it was one of those moments where I was like, like little little tear well, well then, uh, like <laughs> yeah, that yeah. old man who loves opera like he like who had no cultural connection to it but was able to like this thing he had no cultural connection to was like inspired by it and like brought to life something it awoke something in him that was so like essential to his identity yeah but, totally I mean that's the starting point for my paper is this phenomenon where we feel that some things just grip us and seem to demand and compel our attention and we feel that we ought to respond to them in certain ways so the question of my paper is well what could really make sense of that and the answer is, in short, well, the importance of our practical identity of who we are. It actually goes back to something you said earlier, Lenny, about uh, about being obsessed with cards as a kid, right? And and it's so mysterious to us our, our aesthetic identities and preferences. Is like, where did that come from for you? Did you have a disposition, sort of, in, in to to see cards, or was it something about your first experience of a card where you were just like? gripped by this and had like this this transcendent experience and became obsessed with it and that's the interesting thing is that because i have absolutely no access to answering that answer i have no recollection of it it's not i have almost a stated disinterest in cars now but i don't consider it at all core to my personality that i don't like them um yeah. i don't know but it must have been something you know like something was intriguing yeah. uh but yeah i mean clearly i'm sure that at the time i would have considered it core to my identity that this is a thing that i i, I just like the vroom vroom part yeah. of it right, right right yeah yeah <laughs> But I mean, that's a source of a worry that some people have is that, you know, unlike our, our moral values, which are supposed to be constant and relatively unchanging and binding us no matter what, our aesthetic identities seem contingent, right? I mean, you changed. It's transient what your aesthetic identity was to some degree, and you're no longer the sort of person who likes cars. And I think, well, nonetheless, 
at the time when you were the sort of person who was obsessed with cars, you, you could have, an, have had an obligation. And where this kind of concept gets really weaponized is when you start to, do, to, ha- to dig into normative opinions that you should have. Like, I should be the kind of person who likes Bob Dylan, who I do not yeah, like or something. Right. Or, like, if someone were to say, you're a racist if you don't like hip-hop, <laughs> and if I don't like hip-hop, I'm now confronted with, oh, shit, like, what do I do? You know, right. like, how do I turn myself into this kind of person? Yeah. And so the, when the obligation to myself is to develop an entire uh, aesthetic pleasure that, I, that is totally inorganic, you know, what do you do? Or if you're trying to seem like an athlete and you don't like jazz, like, you kind of, like, you know, like... Who is this obligation really to at, at, at that point? At that, that point, it's to, to other people, clearly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it's an important part of my view that you have to be able to trace a route from your current aesthetic preferences to another set of, of preferences that you can't have an obligation to appreciate or pay attention to some item that you just could never appreciate ever, right? I mean, there might be some uh, products from other cultures or from other time periods that it's just not open to me with my aesthetic sensibility to appreciate. And maybe for you, you know, certain certain genres of music could be like that. I um, hope not. No, I'm... I, but we'd listen, have to find out. I'm a fan of everything. The best comeback I heard was uh, if the next time some, like, teeny bopper tells you, like, oh, I like... like what, what kind of music do you like? I like everything. <laughs> really, you like medieval Turkish music. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Um, we should also talk about uh, your character, Raphael. Where did Raphael come from? Raphael is me. You are Raphael. <laughs> I am Raphael. Raphael Did you live was, in my, Munich? was my Spanish name in high school. You know, like you <laughs> nice. take Spanish or some yeah, other yeah. language and you choose a name. And, and I was Diego. And I couldn't mm-hmm. I was Enrique. Enrique. <laughs> Enrique. Even though I have, I well, could be Leonardo. Well, that's the thing is that Brian didn't have a... Uh, is a, that right? A, I, maybe it does. But there is no... Uh, I, Diego is James. Right? I thought Diego was Doug. Because James is like... Hi- Anyway, so so Raphael was was my yeah. name, and uh, I, in fact, in this paper, different paper now on um, valuing and believing valuable, I tell this story about Raphael, who lives in Munich in 2008 during the European Cup, and he previously thinks that like all professional sports are useless, and athletes are wasting their time, and spectators are wasting their and money, overpaid. and oh, way overpaid. Yeah, I mean maybe not for for European football, but whatever. Bracket that. And uh, Raphael is living in Munich and he starts going to pubs to watch the matches with friends and he gets really caught up in the excitement of this and starts rooting for Germany. And, I, and, uh, and yet, you know, I claim that he would still think at some point, well, I don't think football's that valuable. I think soccer's that important. And so I think this is like a, a real phenomenon. And again, I start from this phenomenon and I think, well, how can we make sense of this philosophically? And so did you, did you still not think it valuable even though you were getting invested in it? Yeah, so I think that's a possibility. I mean, and, and the, the sort of main takeaway from my paper, I think readers should get, uh, is, that the, is that valuing something is primarily a set of emotional and affective and motivational dispositions and not like a cognitive state. It's not primarily a judgment that something is valuable or a belief that something is valuable. And a lot of philosophers have, have tried to uh, hyper-intellectualize and, and make more cognitive this phenomenon that I think is primarily emotional and affective. And that it's in part through our emotions that we discover what it is that we value. It's in part when you, little Lenny, sat and watched the cars go by and like felt the thrill of that vroom vroom that you discovered like, oh, I actually value cars. Regardless of whether or not you think that's like objectively important or something that other people have reason to, to take part in. Although certainly, you know, food and shelter and water and that kind of stuff is love maybe or, or lower down on the pyramid or the hierarchy. I think it's really important to say that like 
aesthetic stuff is at the top where again aesthetic is not just art it's like all kinds of of enjoyment and, and spectatorship and games and this kind of thing and that you know these things that we sometimes judge trivial are the things that we often end up spending the most of our lives on and if we're spending so much time of our lives on these things then aren't they in a sense the things that matter the most to us and that we should we shouldn't lose sight of that I th honestly i think we should shift culture so that we are more focused on these things it's like yeah. we're at a point where we have the resources to do this essentially oh, <laughs> like so so there's <laughs> this really interesting thinker named bernard suits who wrote this book called the grasshopper do you know this book no, yeah. it's about games and the philosophy of games and sport oh, and cool. uh and suits imagines this ideal society where people are uh, able to have all of their physical and and um, and bodily needs met and no one needs to work and uh, we kind of live in these sort of pseudo utopian societies and he says well if if we're not going to commit suicide on mass because our lives are devoid of things to do we're going to have to develop games and we're going to have to develop a world where we can take pleasure and find purpose in in games and in things that seem trivial to us, but that can become important to us and that can become really life-defining and meaningful. It's a super interesting argument. Hell also, yes. I gotta I read this. Yeah. Like, you know, and when we find the joy that I find when I see that some primatologist has discovered apes playing, yeah. you know, because it's such a human thing that like right. we have a limited amount of energy and it's almost kind of like a pleasure at having figured out how to thrive so much yeah. that we can expend energy on totally useless things. There's a great, not to plug another book, uh, but there's a great recent book by the Yale or ornithologist and evolutionary biologist, Richard Prom called The Evolution of Beauty, which I would totally recommend to you, which is about um, sexual selection sure. and the idea that against this sort of neo-Darwinist paradigm that everything in nature has to be explained in terms of natural selection and fitness, uh, that um, bird mate choice is actually better explained by sexual selection independent of whether or not, say, your bright plumage indicates that you're healthy or you're free of disease or whatever, that these aren't just um, honest signals that birds give, but that um, female birds in particular can, can just take pleasure aesthetic pleasure in the plumage and the displays that the male birds put on and that this is a force that we see in nature so mm. it's been a it's a controversial book uh and there's a lot of of biologists who have pushed back against this idea as you can imagine but it's it's super interesting to, to think that even in nature these birds are just like going after beauty for its own sake somehow uh let's pivot to uh, a explosive topic this is our controversial section uh, we'll, we'll this will be the second fanfare of the episode not the incel thing <laughs> no no, no, no. That was, okay. That was just the, the that's, funny that's part. That's a warm-up? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was just me me offering red flags um, for myself. Uh, no, I wanted to talk about the, uh, the Enlightenment and the, mm. the controversy that the, that the Enlightenment has recently come into since we have a philosophy expert. That's what they call you guys, right? Philosophy oh, sure, experts? sure, yeah. yeah. I think, think you earned it. You got a PhD, man. <laughs> you were <laughs> thinking mavens? I don't know what the title is. Um, anyway, so just for some background... Uh, Recently, uh, there's a uh, there's a journalist named Jamel Bowie who I fo have followed for a long time. I respect the hell out of him. Uh, he's a Slate uh, writer, and um, he uh, commented on something on Twitter, and it exploded into into a controversy. And basically, what happened was he was replying to someone who. So you know, the larger context obviously is that there's been this whole. Um, revision. Uh, there's been sort of a reaction um, against you know all anything PC and, and this sort of like white pride statement in, in a really inarticulate way, and um, 
And uh, there's been a lot of people like Steve Bannon, you know, is like we'll say something that's transparently racist, but he says that it's just for, you know, to, to promote or protect uh, Western civilization, you know. And um, so uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, Eurocentric bigots and other, you know, even people that aren't overly bigoted have taken pride in is that, you know, the success of Western culture. And one of the things that it's owed to is its embrace of science and, you know, its material emoluments of, of having discovered all, this, all these things. And so um, wrapped up in that is this whole really noble idea of the Enlightenment, which is obviously, you know, one of the main uh, outcomes of the English Enlightenment was, you know, the United States, you know, our, our system of uh, property rights and also, you know, basically like what the, the Thomas Paine idea that then went on to found the French Revolution and basically most of modern liberal society, uh, classical liberalism came out of it. And so there's a lot of people that are very partisan to defending the Enlightenment um, as this, like, this, you know, this main moment of nobility for, for the human mind. And then I think the, the implication is trying to own it for a particular culture, mm -hmm. which is ludicrous because there's been Enlightenments all over the, the world history. Um, all of them, nearly all of them have, have, have stuck around in memory because they've all been uh, beneficial. Like, for example, when uh, Arabs invented the number zero. Totally. I had that example ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like the, you know, in Eastern Or when like Chinese people invented fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> fireworks was just the most awesome thing they invented. There's but other concepts that they... Yeah, that's true. Oh, and also Taoism and all that other cool stuff that they yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all, the, other and cool all like the religions that are like 10 times more mature than our religions. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, I just wanted to read from this article br briefly, uh, just like a little, uh, just two excerpts, and then uh, kind of discuss like what what is our duty to the Enlightenment? How do you think it should be correctly rendered now? Yeah. So um, here, here's uh, what Bowie writes. Uh, Even as they venerate the Enlightenment, these writers actually underestimate its influence on the modern world. At its heart, the movement contained a paradox. Ideas of human freedom and individual rights took root in nations that held other human beings in bondage and were then in the process of exterminating na native populations. Uh, colonial domination and expropriation marched hand in hand with the spread of quote-unquote liberty and liberalism arose alongside uh, modern notions of race and racism. And um, in ad additionally, it took the scientific thought of the Enlightenment to create an enduring racial taxonomy and the color-coded white over black ideology with which we are familiar. This project, undertaken by the leading thinkers of the time, involved, quote, the setting aside of the metaphysical and theological scheme of things for a more logical description and classification that ordered humankind in terms of psychological and mental criteria based on observable facts. Although, uh, end quote, although I'm not positive that, like, preserving a, you know, like, the deistic explanation of the world would have helped <laughs> them be less racist and you know like i mean it's not like they lacked for justifications for enslaving people back when you know god was the source of the, the lone source of truth right um so robbie i'll toss this to you uh what what do you think do you think that that's a fair rendering of of enlightenment thinking and, and philosophy as you know it and what do you think are we owe that entire period of thought now yeah tough question i mean the first thing that that springs to mind is that the uh, the Enlightenment names many things, as you as you yourself said, Lenny, and and has taken place in many different areas and and parts of the world in different time periods. And and as I think of Enlightenment very broadly, it consists in a reliance on on the empirical method and the method of science to form our beliefs, as opposed to the methods of authority or tenacity or uh, a priori 
or some other kind of, of method of forming our beliefs that, that broadly speaking, we should be empiricists. We should formulate hypotheses and uh, test them and update our beliefs in accordance with the actual evidence that there is. And so all of that, I think, uh, is, is true. And to that extent, we, we are post-Enlightenment thinkers, and, and we ought to be because we've inherited these lessons. Uh, now, when it comes to the Enlightenment in Western Europe, a particular instance of this broader notion of the Enlightenment, I think I completely agree with Jamel Bowie here that uh, as a matter of historical fact, and, and proviso here, I'm not a historian, philosophers from the intellect tradition officially know nothing about history and we're really bad at it. But that notwithstanding, I think it, it's clear that um, it did take the pseudoscientific invention of certain racial categories and uh, Kant is is a prime example of this kind of bad uh, racialized thinking. It took the invention of these categories that it then garnered the legitimacy of this new science uh, that was just founded on domination and exploitation. Uh, there was there was no good scientific reason to make these classifications and and, and even less reason today. The Kant, Kant in that article that they said like he had explicitly made a r racial hierarchy uh, yeah. a category like explicitly saying oh yeah white people are on top and then these races of people fall right. in this order below us <laughs> and as yeah. a side just a, a side comment it, Kant is there any philosopher more simultaneously like canonical and also like you have everyone acknowledges his shortcomings like he's a guy who never left his town he has a, a essentially impractically like a essentially useless like theoretical framework for his ethics <laughs> yeah, my, uh, i mean for well, my for my philosophy professor in college i remember he said that you used to at a time when like we didn't have exact clocks or whatever people could try to measure time by where Kant he would yeah, take like a break at a, 4 p.m or exactly something like, like wherever yeah. he was like taking a walk it was like the guy had he must have had ocd or something like that he was like exactly the same place every day like in this repetitive in structure Kunigsberg. Yeah, yeah that's right yeah, yeah. Um, uh, to answer your question, I think yes. Like there, there is no other philosopher whose um, whose strengths and shortcomings are both so widely appreciated. Um, although I think that there are, there are many, many philosophers today who are are proud Kantians, and I think that um, when it comes to philosophers who lean toward a utilitarian point of view versus a Kantian deontological point of view, it's it's pretty even actually. Uh, so it's not the case that say everyone is against Kant. And I think that we should remember that a lot of what Kant says is really uh, moving and invigorating. And the idea of the respect for the moral law within each person, the idea that there's a common humanity, even if Kant misunderstood the extension of that term and in practice applied it to white European males of a certain age, that we can take those ideas and continue to expand them. It's the expanding circle idea, uh, going back to the idea of, of altruism failure. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, sold. But sold. <laughs> I'll buy your account. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that my response to that though is that like to, or to the idea that that what what Jamel Bowie is, is saying and you're you're subscribing to also is that I think that it mis uh, it misdefines what enlightenment is. I think that it, it cannot be I, I, the empiricism point totally. But just the empiricism point, just the reliance on. Uh, actually, I think in Sapiens he defines the enlightenment as a, as a period in which. Uh, humanity acknowledges his ignorance 
Um, which I mean, back like you know, Socrates. That was one of the main things I remember from that is that acknowledging your ignorance is the key to wisdom because then you can start to assess what you actually know, and and develop uh, frameworks for building objective, real, practical truth uh, mm-hmm. or knowledge. Let's say, um, you know, atop other real, practical, objective knowledge, and um, that framework is precisely what has led us to a point at which we have enough genetic knowledge to be able to dispel objectively, conclusively, the notion of race itself. And so just because uh, they were concurrent, bad, uh, specious theories with uh, among people who advocated um, you know, better, more clear uh, moral reasoning, or any kind of reasoning, um, doesn't mean that, uh, that, that those two things should be conflated. Like, the main example that I want to go to is Isaac Newton, you know, both essentially inventing modern physics mm. um, or discovering it, and then, you know, also tinkering around with alchemy. Like, right, right. Th- those, those are not... Hardcore astrologist. <laughs> was he an astrologist? <laughs> Alchemist, astrology, right? Yeah. Was he, see, like, like, well, it, he's like, was like, well, hold on, while I, fi- while I invent calculus, also, is the moon in Aries today? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's folly to, to try to, you know, we have a lot of hindsight and... Um, also, you know, like if you're if you were to to if I were to have invented empiricism today and mm-hmm. I asked you to describe you use that framework to describe the world as you see it and you see a lot of people being subjugated and they all have something in common, you're going to probably conclude that, you know, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's not indicting the larger framework. But I think maybe the enlightenment itself has the resources to understand this and that part of the notion of empiricism is that of fallibilism, the idea that all of our scientific judgments, any judgment about the world is is in principle fallible and could be mistaken and, and maybe needs to be revised later on. And so if that's part of what we've inherited, then I think we should preserve that. Now, there is another component to the enlightenment thinking that's not just the scientific empiricism. There's There's the moral component, right? Which is really not empiricist in quite the same way. The idea that we have a commitment to the ideal equality of all persons, that all persons are equally deserving of moral respect or something like that, that's not something that anyone went out with the method of science and discovered, right? I mean, so that, that is something which, which represents a commitment. And the Kantian idea was that we should try to make the world align with that commitment and try to make the world the kind of place where we can make that scientifically true, as it were. He would not have put this in this way at all, but that's my paraphrase. And so there is that component of the Enlightenment as well, and there's plenty of reasons, again, historically, to condemn particular figures from that period for failing to live up to what we now understand as that ideal. And actually, you're totally right, and just to corroborate that, like the entire idea of natural right is almost ascientific. Right. It it totally counters the idea of any of... Well, it's it's self-conferred, and and for Kant, the idea is that we, as legislators in the kingdom of ends, have conferred this status on ourselves, and it's not something that we discovered. But also, importantly, it's not something that came from God. It's something that humanity has to give itself, and humanity gives itself the moral law. And again, while I'm personally am not at all a Kantian in ethics, I do think there's something very noble about this vision, uh, and I think there's something that that we can still learn from today. Rodney, that was a better philosophy lesson than I, the one I got about 12 years ago, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it stuck a lot more. I'm like, oh, I think I get Kant now, <laughs> um, at least in in some portions of of Kantian thought. Yeah. 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 Okay, um, so let's now close this out by shifting to uh, a topic that Brian suggested, which is. 
who is your favorite philosopher, Brian? Since this is your idea, why don't you? All right. Lay well, it so on me. I'll walk through because I went through a couple. Because my original thought was just to go with the original gangsters, like like an Aristotle or a Plato. But I was like, no, that's too. <laughs> but then I like I was I'm still wavering, and I'm gonna make my final decision at the end of this paragraph <laughs> that I'm writing. Because then I was like, because then I went on to I was like, well, I like Mill. Um, I feel like that formed a lot of what I was thinking. I also like Mill because he was an economist too. So I kind of like that. I'm into reading about economics. I'm like that covers too. But I was like, you know what? I've been reading a lot of Marx lately. Mm-hmm. Also economist. Also kind of like contemporary. Co- contemporary with mill very different thoughts on how things should work but i was like i'm into that then i was like nietzsche died in the coolest way like didn't he like stare at a horse and lose his mind or something no. like that? <laughs> <laughs> again dumbest person here <laughs> nietzsche, nietzsche supposedly uh stopped a man from flogging his horse fell into a coma and then like later died Oh, I thought like his horse stared at me, but like had a complete meltdown, and that's what like. Uh, and that's I what think you should invent a Greek character who that happened to. <laughs> um, uh, but then I, I'm gonna go back to the. I'm going back to the original gangsters. I'm going with Plato because the cave allegory is my favorite. <laughs> the cave, I like. I like reading the allegory in the cave. Is the, that the like, cave allegory is, is excellent and yeah. is so foundational and important. That was like one of the first things I read as a teenager. Yeah. Like at my grandfather's knee, he was like, well, you got to start with Plato's Republic and you got to start with the line and the sun and the cave. Yeah. And that's where it begins. That so, was yeah. the same. That good, was like good in, choice. In my mind, that was like, this is where philosophy, I realized the potential for philosophy. I'm like, oh, whoa, mind blown kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. There you go. So I'm going um, to Plato. Can I tell you a revelation I had about them recently? I don't know if this is accurate, but I realized one day that I always used to think like, wow, what a coincidence that there was Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle and then Alexander the Great. Mm. And then one day I realized like, wait a minute, Alexander the Great just conquered everywhere and made his teachers the standard. And it happened to happen at a time when they had invented writing (laughs) like those. I I totally have all the respect. I mean, you know, not. Not to be like Ayn Randian about it, but I think that they they were in some ways unimprovable, or, or like as someone said, like all philosophy is a, is a just footnote to Plato. Uh, Whitehead, yeah, all philosophy consists in a series of footnotes to Plato. Yeah, <laughs> Alfred North Whitehead, neglected twentieth yeah. century thinker. Well, I'm a brass bound idealist, so <laughs> I, that's from uh, all the Kingsmen. But um, uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, so it was just like, oh my god, there was no magic to. It's not like their their genius just transcended space and time it was like they they were they had good thoughts and they preceded someone who conquered the entire known world mm-hmm. yeah and founded a library and probably stocked it with the guy <laughs> who taught him <laughs> yeah yeah anyway um so alexander the great's your favorite philosopher alexander the, yeah, yeah might is <laughs> right baby controversial yeah. choice yeah yeah <laughs> no i'm gonna go and and this i am definitely not gonna say too much about this because i don't i don't know enough to to speak to him at all but heidegger mm. was the one who um most made me feel like I had a grasp on mortality, which is typically something that I struggle with. Like when I feel real existential anxiety, it's about mortality and the idea of thrownness. Mm. Like the the example that my professor in college gave was like, we are a we're like a pitch that's been thrown to the catcher, and like we we come into consciousness on the way from the pitcher's mound to the catcher. That's death. And like it is just this, th- it, it's like this inexorable motion towards one possible end, and um, and we and all of our experience is consisted therein. 
And yet we can have the possibility of living an authentic life, even in the face of uh, knowing that we're being towards death. Right. The co- contextualize. It's not memento mori. It's even more empowered. It's like, this is what I am, essentially. And Nietzsche and said, not just memento mori, but memento vivere. So not just remember that you nice. will die, but remember that you are now living. Good oh, old Nietzsche. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, man. And then also, for the other thing about Heidegger that I really liked was um, the... Uh, I applied it uh, a couple years ago when I was asked to write something about the gun control debate, huh. and I applied it because it was like um, phenomenologically, like we, like people are the reason the gun debate can never be had on common ground is because they are literally not the same object that people are looking at. When someone is extremely familiar with a firearm, which is usually the case when you come with like people who love guns, they totally think of them as. They're not. They're actually not mythical. They're maybe like what they represent is is a mythical political ideology. But really, what it is, it's like a trusty thing that they fully understand mm-hmm. the mechanics of. And to you know, one of your neighbors at the Parks Love Co-op or whatever, it's this huge threatening thing. And so, applying a phenomenological framework to it, they're they are literally not the same. Um, there's not the same uses of them, and they don't mm-hmm. represent the same thing. So they're not the same object. And so, the gun control debate is fundamentally had about different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so for having given me, and also I wrote that article like literally with like five hours. I was like, shit, shit, shit. What am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> so for having solved that problem for me, uh, Heidegger is my vote. That's super interesting. I mean, I, I think there's probably something to that. The idea that for, for stereotypical red staters, guns are, are a tool and, uh, and they're, they're ready to hand in, in Heidegger's terms. Right. And so you, en- you engage with them in the mode that you engage a tool, the way you engage a knife, the way you engage the doorknob. It's just something that uh, you understand its function and how it works and what it's doing for you. And for blue staters who hold guns at arm's length, and have no idea what they are. They treat them as like the present at hand. Right. Or whatever the Heideggerian term is. Um, yeah. I mean, as someone who grew up, uh, with shotguns in Texas, uh, but definitely thinks of myself as very pro-gun control. I feel like I can understand uh, when I read some of the um, very loving and uh, respectful and, and in some ways I think quite mature attitude toward guns that, that certain people have uh, and understanding that there's a value in guns and there's a pleasure to gun ownership. Um, but uh, yeah, on the whole, though. You should totally apply your love of dissecting aesthetic pleasures to guns. That would be cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the aesthetics of gun ownership. Yeah, someone's probably done that. Because most of it is aesthetic, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, there's there's the the avoiding, the, the resisting tyranny canard, which is pretty ridiculous. Right, right. But w- which I think a lot of people subscri- uh, subscribe Lenny, to. Lenny, I don't know. My 20 gauge is going to protect <laughs> me from that drone strike. From yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, as, it's as a hellfire Don, missile I can't even see coming. I mean, it's like. It, it was Don DeLillo that gave me the insight that, like, as soon as nuclear power meant that that the power of war was, for the first time, entirely unified with the state. You know, mm-hmm. like, it, that, that whole concept is over. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, who is your uh, who's your choice? Well, I'm going to go back to the Enlightenment and say uh, and say Hume, David Hume, oh, uh, Hume. 18th yeah. century Scottish thinker, um, in part because of what he did as a committed naturalist for um, theoretical philosophy and for empiricism, and uh, in in part for what he did for for moral philosophy and the idea that n- there could be a kind of science of morality which uh, starts from the actual sentiments and emotions and kind of psychology that human beings have. So 
whereas Kant, who came later, would, would think of us as rational beings and not worry too much about how human beings are in fact constituted. Hume very much cared about the particular concrete nitty-gritty details of the kinds of things that we in fact respect and admire and praise and blame and punish and shame and uh, gets, gets us to the details of what it means to be a human being. And at the same time, he wrote a lot of really interesting things about aesthetics. Uh, he wondered about how aesthetic judgments could be objective and wrote still one of the definitive treatments about the standard of aesthetic taste. Um, he was a kind of proto-feminist. He was a historian, an essayist, incredible stylist. He was a bon vivant and he loved to drink and party. Uh, he hated the monkish virtues, celibacy and abstinence. And he just seems like he would have been such a fun guy to hang out with. Uh, and he had a totally sanguine attitude toward his death. And even uh, in, in excruciating pain, the last year of his life said that, you know, this was this was like the best year of his life. And he was still just just having a blast. So that's balling. Yeah, that's pretty. Well, Scotland they had such a good run. They like they were like they're they're just crushing it right back. Then. And that's where we get the term human. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I knew human it. fallibility is to be celebrated. The that's Scottish right. Epicurean. It didn't come around until like the early 19th century. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Awesome. Let's leave it there. Uh, Robbie Kabbalah, it has been a pleasure uh, hiring you to be the uh, resident philosopher in residence at Infinity License. Yeah. I look forward to you uh, taking us down a bunch of pegs. <laughs> <laughs> Just be really, you guys are so dumb. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, you, th you thought you knew something, but you don't. <laughs> uh, so you just published a paper. Uh, do you have anything to plug or anything? Uh, so I am currently in full summer mode post PhD. I'm taking like a month off for the first time in like seven years, and I just just reread Infinite Jest. Oh yeah, uh, reread Infinite Jest. I just I literally finished it this afternoon. Oh uh, my man, now we got to do a second podcast about this. Yeah, Jeez, I know. Right? <laughs> it's very fresh in my mind. I can talk through all the details. Let's talk um, about that tennis game they play. Oh, uh, Eskaton. Yeah. I have a my partner and I have a poster in our bathroom, which is a printout. Uh, representation of that game the map. of the map of, of the Eschaton game board yeah it's, uh, it's pretty so cool. amazing <laughs> uh, so yeah I'm like I'm, I'm reading fiction and literature and uh, eventually I'll get back to, to writing some more papers but uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep thinking about aesthetic value and the importance of the aesthetic in our lives and how it relates to the moral and uh, fighting a good fight for naturalism and, uh, and empiricism Good for you. And also, you're totally right. The other point that you made in the paper that we didn't discuss, that literature can be f totally valid philosophical-like thinking. Thank you. I'm glad and, you agree. <laughs> uh, we're almost ready to announce the details of our special gala in August. Yes. Uh, get so excited. Loyal licensees, get excited. Party's right. coming. A gala. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a gala. We'll, a we'll basement gala. <laughs> 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 All right, so uh, we'll get taken out. Should we get taken out by some more got to get up and get down with funk music or some Thundercat? Because you mentioned that. I, I think it's got to be Thundercat. All, All right, right, let's do Thundercat. Endorse Thundercat. <laughs> Peace. All right, have a good one. Thanks again, Robbie. Thanks for having me.
Ooh, I'm a dumb moron with podcasting equipment.